Welcome back. This is Herpetological Highlights episode 43, perhaps? Yeah, 43. And I'm Ben Marshall, and co-hosting, as always, is Thomas Major. We are back to the news niche. We're doing a little bit of a diverse selection of papers this week after the Christmas mess that was last episode. Um... I don't really have much intro. I think we just get straight onto it and dive into some papers because they could be coming from anywhere. I don't know what you've looked at. Um, I, I barely know what I've looked at. Yeah, to be fair, he's right. So I think it's important to mention that in the future, when people are naming islands, they should try and make sure there's only one with each name. That would reduce confusion a lot. Um, what are you, like, broadly speaking about? What have you been reading this week? What have I been reading about? I've been reading about uh, Komodo dragons and things with brains. Oh, good. I'm glad you read that paper. I, I was meaning to get around to it, but I haven't. Um, I just read loads about newts. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a good contrast then. Yeah. And and the uh, consistent theme is that all these animals do have a brain. Yes, um, that's true. As with most animals. It's perfect. Uh, who wants to kick things off? I can start with some Komodo dragons if you like. Yeah, tell tell me about Komodo dragons. Hmm. So I was I read a paper by uh, Jessup et al. Whole bunch of people. Uh, Twenty eighteen exploring mechanisms and origins of reduced dispersal in island Komodo dragons, and this was published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B Biological Sciences, or however you say that long winded journal name. Proc B. Um, Proc B. Oh, I should have just said that, shouldn't I? <laughs> so, very much like sort of carrying on from what we were talking about last episode, you've got things that live on islands, and things living on islands tend to be different from things that don't live on islands, right? Yeah. You've got different selective pressures, and that can modify modify how things live there, and uh, ultimately impact how they may disperse off the islands, or deal with new colonizations, that sort of thing. But there's this strange, or potentially strange, scenario going on where you get these animals that are good enough to disperse to the islands, but then apparently don't disperse any further, as is the case with Komodo dragons. They're just found on a bunch of islands in, I suppose, what you would call central Indonesia, and aren't really going anywhere. Why haven't they spread to other islands? That sort of stuff. And also, what sort of impacts are limited dispersal having on these dragons? Can I just stop you there, Ben? What is a Komodo dragon? <laughs> oh, it's like the biggest, coolest monitor lizard you've ever seen. Okay. They're gigantic. Yeah. What do we do? Yeah, these guys are talking a lot. This study's working on lizards that are like 30 kilograms. These are big lizards. Wow. Really, what they're, what they're trying to work out is just having a bunch of any animal stuck on an island has the potential to use up resources, cause inbreeding, and things like that. Stuff that motivates of certain individuals to get out and to disperse, to reduce the inbreeding uh, pressures, and to find new resources. But that doesn't always happen, like Komodo's. So what's what's causing that? Wait, so the Komodos are pretty much just staying put regardless. Ah, well this yeah, this is exactly it. This study is 
oh my gosh, the amount of different lines of evidence these guys did. It's part of a 10-year study. And what did they do? They did 10 years worth of mark recapture stuff. They did several years of radio telemetry on 55 different dragons. I've done a whole bunch of genetics work and they translocated some of the Komodo dragons as well to see how they did with homing behavior and whether they, you know, basically whether they return back to their home range or do something else. How do they mark Basically the, the impacts are with big fluorescent paint. They just paint them? And also pit tags. Ah, uh, okay, right, right, yeah. And pit tags are like what you get in your pet for, for identification. Yeah, the little microchips. Um, what else did they do? Oh, and just opportunistic stuff because... Komodo's so well uh, patrolled by rangers. I had the rangers look out for any dispersal events of Komodo dragons moving moving about. And really what they found is these dragons are lazy. They don't go anywhere. It's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. So they were, they were looking whether dragons stayed in the same valley, moved to another valley, or moved islands. That's what one of their uh, hypotheses was, was or one of their points of investigation was where gene flow is happening. And they found that they just never change valleys and they never change islands. They're incredibly um, limited in where they go, sticking into their own little home valley and not going anywhere else. But this is sort of weirdly contradictory because they can move incredible distances on average they were moving two and a half kilometers every day and some of them would move 11 kilometers in a day so they're perfectly capable but they just don't so they're just kind of patrolling their own valley are they yeah they're just sitting sitting still in their own valley well not sitting still moving around in their own valleys doing their own things in their own little subpopulations and this was backed up by the gene flow studies or aspect of this study that was saying there's only like uh, 0.2% of 1,098 dragons changed valley or site. Wow. So it was backed up with a very, very limited gene flow and very, very limited um, recaptures of dragons in different valleys. Wow. I guess... They're obviously maintaining their um, sort of uh, genetic variability enough with just the odd one feeling inclined to travel around. Well, this is, I think, they, there were lines of evidence suggesting that there was quite high inbreeding and there is quite high pressure on prey because the survivability was connected to uh, the amount of available prey biomass. So there is some sort of sort of pressure there. And populations do tend to decline when they're trapped on smaller islands. So there's something sort of there's something more going on. Yes. So um, do they know how long Komodo dragons live in the world? Oh, I, I I certainly don't, and I don't think it's mentioned in the paper. Ah. Um. But no worries. Um. Yeah, I do remember vaguely hearing about the fact that Komodo dragons were just super lazy. And um, I mean, certainly it speaks to the experience I had when I went to Komodo and Rinka. And um, yeah, they were all just kind of chilling about, lazing around, sitting on the ground. But apparently well, it's there's... not even... Yeah, they, they will move. 
and they, they, they do have a sort of loyalty to where they are too because the translocated ones they translocated a good number of dragons varying distances from like two and a half kilometers up to uh, 11 and then also up to 30 I believe it was it's like big 30 kilometer translocations if they're on the same island they go back to the same valley <laughs> if they were translocated to a different island that was actually a shorter distance away, only a kilometre, they would refuse to swim across the ocean and get back to the original island. And then they just stayed there. Really? They were unwilling to swim? Yeah. It's amazing. So there was this huge like refusal to disperse and strong homing ability, but also a very strong <laughs> dislike of uh, getting across the water. So you can drive a Komodo dragon 30 kilometers down the road and all you're doing is inconveniencing it. Yep, you'll go just, how long just head it, on back. How long did it take for a Komodo dragon to go 30 kilometers? Uh, well, I would have thought it could do it in a few days, but they said as far as homing behavior, they had all, all the ones on the same island had returned back to their original home range within four months, I believe. Oh, okay. So some of them go back slowly. They just got it in their mind that they're... <laughs> Yeah, this is this is what's sort of odd is they couldn't really hammer down to why they're so dispersal limited. But they did come up with a couple of reasons of how this could be allowed to happen. Because you got to remember that other monitor lizards are pretty good at dispersing, like uh, Asian water monitors and stuff. They're found all over the place, and they've been shown to be pretty decent uh, decent movers when it comes to comes to dispersal, but they don't move the distances that Komodo dragons do on a day-by-day -day basis. No. So you do have this weird uh, contradiction. Yeah, though, um, ah, it's mad. I wonder, though, because if Komodo dragons were dispersing in recent times, um, and didn't they, they used to be more widespread, didn't they? There was islands where they've gone extinct. But, yeah. But, um, I mean, if you were a human community living you know, beachside, and suddenly a Komodo dragon rocks up out of the sea, you're not going to probably... Then it's a party. Yeah. Well, I'd be really excited, but I think most people um, would probably not react favourably to that happening. Well, one of the... Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're coming coming into a new island, it's a hostile environment, right? Mm. So one of the reasons they're suggesting that there's such a uh, reluctance to disperse it's because a lot of these Komodo dragons seem to be quite specialised to their particular island. So there's, there's a fourfold difference between Komodo dragon body mass between different island populations. So that's suggesting pretty strong uh, pressures to change body size and fit in with whatever island you're on. Which makes a lot of sense when you come back to sort of island uh, biogeography because you get flightless birds and things like that. You're, you know, you skip out some traits for ones that are more specialised for that particular island. Yeah. We need it seems to be the case where Komodos haven't lost the ability to disperse if they wanted to, but there's something else, a different trait that might have been, or different... It's very similar to this um, Orbit paper we read last time, isn't it? Where um, yeah. it'd be really curious to see whether or not the dragons that are smaller on different islands are smaller because you know, they're genetically determined to be smaller or whether it's a phenotype thing where they're 
not getting as much food and they're not growing as large. It'd be interesting to see if you translocated babies from one island to another island, if they grew, or even just did it in a lab setting to see if they got as you know, if they reached their maximum potential size yeah. and whether it was small or large. Or whether it was even beneficial. Yeah. Because this is, this is the other thing. It's all got to have enough of a pressure to happen and where birds and their flightlessness makes a lot of sense because it's quite costly to have more complex flight. Hmm. Cool, cool. Imagine studying Komodo dragons, that would be so fun. Oh man, it would be incredible. Absolutely incredible. Ten years, it, it's an awesome study. Ten years worth of study and so many different avenues that they've investigated what's going on here. Um, I'm a little bit, I, I'm afraid I'm not giving a particularly good uh, picture of why there's limited dispersal, but they're also sort of suggesting that it could come down to Komodo dragons dealing with the pressures of inbreeding and reduced prey in different ways. So they do, they're they relaxing this dispersal pressure. And one of them, we talked, oh my gosh, like episode four or something like that, about ontogenetic change in Komodo dragon diet. And they're suggesting perhaps very smart niche partitioning between Komodo dragons within a population allows more dragons in one location and so there's less of a sort of relaxed pressure to go somewhere else and find more resources because there's smart partitioning mm. from what i remember i mean the juveniles all hang out in the trees don't they when they're really small exactly yeah and they're mostly eating invertebrates and stuff like that and um lizards and that kind of stuff and then as they get bigger they make that shift to large mammals another thing they may be suggesting is actually dispersing to a different location that also has Komodo dragons might be really tough. Um, potential cannibalism and potential territoriality sort of things. Maybe there's some pressures there that's trying to reduce or that are reducing dispersal sort of success and pushing back against that. I don't know. It's... Um... Oh, here we go. Here's a, here's a good statistic. One migrant dispersal event every around 24 years. Wow. That's how much gene flow there was between two islands. Well, that's not a lot in, in our sort of measure of time, but I guess over the course of evolutionary history and kind of maintaining, gen, you know, um, it's obviously enough for them to maintain enough sort of genetic diversity that, that, that it's all right. Potentially. Unless they yeah, are slowly, I mean, slowly sliding towards extinction, which would be really sad. They... <sighs> Maybe. Mm. I don't know. It just seems very, very... It's a very strange dichotomy where you have a big, uh, far-moving animal that just moves a lot in a very small space. Mm. It's very it's very strange, very interesting. They came up with a... They used a fun term in this called... Uh, they were saying they were psychologically constrained... They have excellent homing ability, but refuse to do it over oceans and stuff. <laughs> Psychologically so constrained. It makes them sound like they're idiots. <laughs> but, yeah, they were re referring to other other birds that go onto islands, but then they're suddenly very reluctant to cross narrow barriers. And they're saying Komodo dragons could be psychologically constrained, saying that behavior is preventing them from crossing even small distances. Like I say, a, a kilometre of water is not far for a lizard that's this size. 
especially monotelizards, you know, they're strong swimmers by tradition. Yeah, they are, yeah. Really strong. So maybe maybe they just don't like moving. Maybe they're just happy and they don't like moving. A big monotelizard looks better in the water than it does on land. <laughs> Well, I think they, they disagree. They're embarrassed. Yeah, they're ashamed. Embarrassed of their swimming ability. It's a damn shame. But I mean... They see the saltwater crocs and their things and they're like, oh, we're just not like those guys. <laughs> Maybe they're just like us. They're scared of deep water and they don't really know why. There's not really... <laughs> I mean, what's... You know, there's a slim chance that a shark might eat one. Or a crocodile. Yeah. But that's so unlikely. It is. It, I'm sure it's a lot of different things all impacting this and Komodos just haven't I mean maybe it's a holdover from when they were not on islands but when they were a continental species and water just isn't something that they naturally had to deal much with mm. and so there's some like innate yeah yeah like I don't want to go near it but then you'd expect to see at least heightened dispersal and heightened gene flow between valleys where there aren't many barriers and certainly aren't water barriers, but you don't even see that. They're still, they still stay in their same little valleys. So, <sighs> maybe they just don't like going uphill. Well, maybe, but uh, terrain type. I oh, know they only did ocean versus land. I thought they did a more complicated terrain type, but. Uh, Basically, terrain and ocean didn't make a difference in gene flow rates, and neither did geographical distance. Uh, so. hmm. Well, that's cool. I love hearing about Komodo dragons. Um, yeah. Komodo is just the most amazing place. Uh, it's like Jurassic Park, basically. But real. But real, yeah. And obviously, dinosaurs are birds. Komodo dragons are lizards. But they look like dinosaurs, so it's fine. If, if you squint. Mate, you barely have to squint. It's pretty much a Diplodocus. <laughs> Mate, they're way better than Diplodocus. <laughs> I don't know. They are the coolest. They're one of the coolest animals going. But if I saw a real-life Diplodocus, I'd probably lose my mind. I'd probably have already... I think already if saw a real-life Komodo dragon, I'd lose my mind. Yeah. Yeah, they're pretty special. Yeah. Cool. So, um, Komodo dragons... In a line, how to summarize that in one line? Komodo dragon. How to summarize that in one line? Psychologically uh, dispersal limited. Yes, they move a lot, but just remain local. They just go in circles. How? Why they're doing it? Still a bit of a mystery. I think. I don't think there were particularly clear, clear reasons in that. But maybe I'm, I'm, I'm not catching the. Uh, the fact that the real hook of the paper, but um, well, because there seem to be some serious contradictions in how they could move and what they were doing. There's a lot of videos of Komodo dragons fighting and um, just being generally not very nice to each other. So it could just be that they're afraid of what's over the ridge. What if there's a bigger boy? Well, yeah, that's a that's a very real possibility. They do. I mean, I brought it up in relation to the cannibalism, but it could just be they get bullied. Yeah. And after a lifetime of being afraid, it takes a long time to get used to the idea that you're the biggest lizard. Mm. Well, and there's only one biggest lizard. So mm -hmm, exactly. there's always that doubt. What if I'm not the biggest? Yeah. What if the biggest is just in the next valley? Terrifying. 
Cool. Um, also terrified of the oceans because they don't want to go back. <laughs> <laughs> Those poor translocated dragons. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if they ever... Did they move them back at the end or did they just leave them where they were translocated? I don't think so because they left them for a good three years uh, to see if they, <laughs> they'd make it back. So I guess at that point you're like, well, they've made a new life here now. This is... This is just what's going to happen. Was there any impact on their survivability being translocated? Oh, I don't think they investigated that because you'd need more individuals to really... I don't think... I mean, I don't think the translocated ones died. So... And most of them made it back. It was only uh, the ones that were translocated across islands that, um, that didn't return... Um, let me see if I can find how many were actually... It does bode well for their conservation if they can withstand being translocated. Just in case uh, something d- d- ever d- happens on Komodo, just stick them somewhere else that's not got any animals we mind going extinct because of Komodo damage. It was only it was only three adults. Ah, uh, okay. Um, as I said, the translocation bit is the most limited in terms of stud- uh, study animals because obviously you're, you're risking them. They did two that were moved uh, five and eight kilometers. They did another two that were 15 and 20 kilometers. Um, and then they did three that were translocated across islands. Amazing that they were allowed to do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they were big lizards too, greater than 35 kilograms, those guys. Wow. That would really Not shake the biggest, up the social big. area for Komodos. I can't see where they say the biggest in the how big the biggest individual, but they were pretty hefty. I mean, they must get to like way bigger than thirty-five. They must get to seventy odd. I think the top end of their classification was sixty, but I cannot. Oh, they might describe the different sizes in a different study because there's a trio of. Uh, there's a trio of studies, one looking at like thermal ecology, one had the ontogenetic change that we discussed before, there was another one uh, discussing uh, home range size and stuff like that. So they've done a lot of work and I have a feeling the actual sizes of all these lizards and things to do of that nature are in a different paper, so I cannot find it. No worries. I think there's some big guys out there. That's all I'm saying. That's That I can say quite safely. Well, I was going to compare the size of an adult Komodo dragon to a Great Dane. You know the dog. Yeah. For dramatic effect. But then I realised that Great Danes are absolutely massive and they can be like 90 kilograms. Well, they're pretty fat, aren't they? Yeah. Well, it's a bit... Yeah, it's... I don't know. If I do a quick search for... Largest Komodo dragon. <laughs> this is what we should be doing. I bet you I can find a bigger dog. That's all I'm saying. I bet you that if you find the bigger dog, uh, that you would lose in a fight. They're saying up to 91 kilograms. Wow. See, that's, that's, that's Wikipedia's knowledge. That's a big, big lizard. So they would then yeah. be the same size as a big Great Dane. According to Wikipedia, mm. the biggest Great Dane ever was called Zeus, and he died in September 2014, and he was only five when he died. 
which is it's probably because he was horribly inbred. <laughs> yeah, and his heart was like the size of a watermelon, probably. Uh, still, oh, man, I bet for those five years he was magical. Right, I want to talk to you about newts. Newts? Yes. What about newts? <clears throat> well, just recently, I went to um, Canterbury to uh, Kent University to go on a course. Ah, home of the newt. Home of the newt, like fabled newt homeland. And um, also home of Steve Elaine, who's obviously a massive newt fan. Um, we had him on the podcast. And yeah, I was there for like a wildlife population modeling course, which was really, really good um, with some of the academics there. But um, while I was there, I was also lucky enough to be taken out newting with uh, Steve and his mate JP. And they've got all these experimental ponds at Kent. There's like six or eight of them. These little, they're really experimental small. Experimental newt ponds. Yeah, they're, <laughs> mate, they're like, I would have thought they would have been a lot bigger, but they're really small. They're only like two meters by one meter. Um and well, and newts are quite little, aren't they? Well, great crested newts aren't, mate. They're massive. Um, yeah, but I mean, we've just been talking about Komodo dragons. Well, you show me a you show me a ninety <laughs> kilogram newt. If you, I mean, there, imagine that though. There may once have been a newt that big, but I, I don't know. Oh boy, I don't think so. Actually, I think we'd know about it if there was a. It'd be incredible, though. Yeah, maybe some of the first amphibians were big, but. 90 kilograms big? 90 kilograms. Seems a lot. <laughs> it seems excessive. Yeah, like just got out of the land. Just grow to gargantuan size. But maybe, you know, there was like... But with 90 kilograms, they'd never want to leave the water. They'd be too... Yeah. would be too sort of heavy for them, for their little amphibian bones. But you know, you see those, like, um, paleo art pictures of, like, the first amphibians in swamps. And they've just got these sort of really sad inquiring faces <laughs> and they're like Whoa. and they're all sort of <laughs> pale grey do you know what I mean I reckon some yeah, of those because they've been bullied out of the water yeah. it's the opposite of the Komodo oh, dragon thing please. they've been forced to disperse the fish are being so mean <laughs> <laughs> but they were all these like ambush swamp predators right so although well, actually the first ones can't have been ambush predators because they wouldn't have anything to ambush but um, irrespective <laughs> I don't know why I've... they could have ambushed invertebrates that's true yeah that's true that's true um, but yeah so there might have been amphibians that were 90 kilos I don't know if anyone knows and is listening let us know um, anyway obviously great crested newts they're not 90 kilograms they're probably I mean I think they were like 30 grams 40 grams was like a big big newt um, but you know they're about 10 inches long they're quite you know they're pretty serious newts way bigger than any newt I've ever seen I was completely gobsmacked so they've got this like really long ongoing mark recapture um, study at Mm. these experimental ponds in Kent Um, and we went and set the traps out in the evening and then we came back we actually saw some in the evening when we were picking the traps out we just saw a couple of newts swimming around in the pond um, and then we came back in the morning and we caught the newts out of them. And it was really cool because there was smooth newts. There was also palmate newts, which are much, much smaller. But then there was also the big daddies, these like great crested newts. Um, and I'd, yeah. I'd never seen one before, mate. And they're absolutely unbelievable. You can see what the fuss is about. They've got this crazy fin all down the back. It's like super spiky, or at least the males have. Um, their bellies are like bright orange with these cool spots. 
Um, and they're just like these really big, endearing, warty animals. And um, <coughs> what's cool is the way they tell the individuals apart, because obviously it's a mark recapture study, is you like turn them upside down. You put them in this little like squidgy thing <laughs> to keep them upside down so you can take a photo. And um, based on the unique pattern of spots, you can tell which one's which. Um, and one of the ones we caught was called Stan, which I quite liked. Stan was quite an endearing character. Um, and Stan gets caught quite a lot, I think. Steve seemed to know Stan quite well. Um, but yeah, it was just really, really cool. So I kind of thought after that, well, I'm going to read a bit about newts. And I saw this paper, which is by Matos et al., came out this year. Uh, it's called Short-Term Movements and Behaviour Govern the Use of Road Mitigation Measures by a Protected Amphibian. And it was published Ooh. in Animal Conservation. Um, and the kind of... The kind of press the well to set the scene for this paper it's kind of a well-known fact that amphibians and roads don't really mix um they're not really particularly savvy when it comes to roads they often get hit by cars um and roads kind of serve to carve up habitat into chunks and often the newts which are well, they do two kind of migrations each year. In the spring, they come out of hibernation and they start looking for their breeding pools. So they've got to travel across land to find where they're going to breed. And then again in autumn, when they're leaving their breeding pools and they're looking for places to either just chill out or hibernate, um, they're, they're leaving the ponds again then. So there's these kind of two periods of the year when uh, newts are vulnerable to roads. And these are the times they're going to be crossing them to get get from point A to B, essentially. Um and this paper was about great crested newts, which is Troturus cristatus, which are the ones I saw in Kent. And um, yeah, it was basically looking at whether or not road mitigation measures were effective for great crested newts. Um, so essentially, um, because obviously newts can't look both ways and cross, humans have kind of got this nice <laughs> habit of using what we you perceive... You need a little... Um little spinning pad for them a little uh, lazy susan so they can rotate one way rotate the other and then run off it that's that's what i would design allow them to see both ways without turning their little newt necks <laughs> yeah they don't really have good necks they're kind of just like looking whichever way they're looking but <laughs> um yeah so basically yeah so to avoid this bloodshed we've kind of tried to use mitigation methods which are things that we perceive to help so um examples would be tunnels under roads so that newts and other animals can go underneath the road rather than crossing over it and then fences um to sort of encourage the newts to go under the tunnels so you'd have like long areas of fences with interspersed with tunnels and then when the newt gets to a tunnel it can just like nicely cross under and that's a really nice idea right like it makes good sense um have, have they um tried the salmon gun technique as well <laughs> yeah they have the old newt some sort of newt gun newt, the newt <laughs> zuka um yeah no that works really well newts i mean the trouble was they did it but the newts just kept going back to it and just going in it for fun and eventually oh they just got a kick out of it yeah adrenaline junkie newts that's the trouble with newts so yeah the old salmon bazooka yeah. had to be abandoned unfortunately um, if anyone doesn't know who we're on about there's like essentially water cannons to help salmon go up man-made stretches of river um what are they called salmon cannons Salmon cannons, I think, yeah. Just Google or YouTube salmon cannon and prepare to be entertained. But They're yeah, pretty good. they don't do that for newts. Instead, they build these fences and these tunnels. And the idea is the newt will 
you know, the newt's thinking, right, I'm going to get to pond, you know, my favorite pond. I'm going to go there. Um, that's where I can either lay my eggs or find a female and yeah, sort of mission engaged. What will happen is they bump into a fence. This is a theory anyway. And when they bump into the fence, the idea is if they're trying to get to a specific location in their mind, they'll follow the fence until they can go the direction they want to go. And then they'll go under the tunnel and they'll find where they want to be. Um, and we've been doing this for a long time for newts. Um, and these mm. ideas are long held, but no one had really tested to see whether they actually follow the fences or whether they're just kind of deflected away at random whenever they encounter a fence. So with this in mind, the authors of this paper set out to do some fieldwork um, with lots of volunteers, including Steve. Steve actually helped out on this project. Um, and they conducted a study on some great crested newts in Cambridgeshire in England in a place called Hampton Nature Reserve. Now again, oh, sounds lovely. It, mate, doesn't it? Hampton Nature Reserve it just conjures <laughs> images of a nice country house. Sounds so Middle England. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. So there's 340 ponds in this nature reserve. 340 right, that's ponds. that's a bit much. <laughs> yeah. Steady on, guys. <laughs> Too many ponds. Um, Maybe you consolidate those into a lake. <laughs> and uh, there's as many as 30,000 great crested newts in this one site. Wow. Yeah, so... Wow, that's a lot of newts, man. Mm-hmm, I know. There's also smooth That's got newts. to be a newt stronghold. Yeah, oh, absolutely it is. It's probably the biggest single population of them anywhere, certainly in the UK. I don't know whether there's bigger populations in Europe. There's also smooth newts, which are like mini crested newts, for anyone who's not seen one. Um, frogs and toads. Um, just to be clear, I mean common frogs and common toads. In the UK, we only really have one common species of each, so we just call them frogs and toads. So there's frogs, toads, smooth newts, and great crested newts, and um, well, we have we have natterjacks, yeah, and things like that too. Not on this side, they're much rarer. Yeah, yeah, we do, but, but they're rarer. We've also got um, pool frogs, yeah, um, and potentially European tree frogs. <laughs> um, potentially, that's where my frog knowledge runs dry. But yeah, so you know, you know, you know, this site. It sounds like a new paradise, doesn't it? Mm. But there's trouble in paradise, Ben. Oh, God. So in 2006, a new housing development was built towards the north of this reserve. And people who live in houses like driving cars. So It's one of their favourite pastimes. It is. It is. Um, so in order for these people who live in these houses to get to their houses from perhaps their place of work or a leisure activity, they built a 10 to 12 metre wide road, which is designed to support between one and 10,000 vehicles per day. So, to a between, between one and ten pounds, it can't support zero. <laughs> <laughs> if the, if someone doesn't drive this road, oh boy, the road's be just having effect. a crisis. If not, if a th less than a thousand cars go What's down. What's my it. purpose? <laughs> Why am I here if not to smash newts? So essentially, well, that, that's the thing. It's, it's cars hate newts. They do sworn nemeses so concrete newt barriers were installed adjacent to the road so that would actually stop any newts if they managed to get to the road going across it but before that to try and help newts cross safely um they installed some really long um fences i think it was like a few hundred meters of fences and three tunnels um one tiny little thin wait how, how long is this stretch of road um it is i don't think they said but they've got this crossing point because it's between like two sets of ponds. Oh, it's not that long. 
Okay, so the road's much longer, but um, basically there's a road the other side, and then there's like a little housing development. Um, so the area where the um, the area of the road where there's kind of vegetation each side is probably like maybe three hundred meters. Okay, Maybe so it's, it's a crossing meters. every like three hundred me- uh, every hundred meters or so. There's a crossing every thirty meters. Oh, okay, every thirty meters. Yeah. Okay, but the whole the whole length of the road portion is like two hundred meters, but these are kind of in the middle of it. Um, so there's these yeah, three. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes these, sense. You got it in your head, yeah. Yes. So there's these three tunnels. One's super thin. It's like a thirty centimeter long tube, and then there's two massive tunnels which are like really wide. They're five and a half meters wide and two meters high. So you could comfortably kind of run around down there. Uh, and they're all about 40 meters long under the road. Okay. And like I said, in between where the tunnels are, there's this plastic fencing, drift fencing, about 300 meters of that. And that stops the newts trying to just get across and over to the road. It kind of is supposed to funnel them towards the tunnels and then they can go under the tunnels. And so what these researchers did was they collected data by surveying along and under the road at night, both in spring and autumn. And they were basically looking to see whether or not the newts were using these tunnels, what was going on. Um, Do you know what sort of peak newt weather is, Ben? If you were going out to survey newts, what sort of weather would you be looking for? Uh, Really, really arid days. (laughs) So they all get dried up and crispy. They're easy to find that way. (laughs) Wow. You should be a newtologist. <laughs> no, quite the opposite. No, I'm guessing, yeah, so, soggy, moist days, but not too cold. Hmm. Mate, spot on. So, um, yeah, peak weather is when it's rained within three days and it's over six degrees Celsius at night. We really... That's still pretty cold. We live in a cold place. Um, yeah. That's what the best you can hope for. So, um, yeah. The way they did this was they were looking to see the new movement, obviously, in relation to the mitigation measures. So they did some powdering of newts and they basically grabbed hold of a newt <laughs> gently and professionally and dunked it in this powdery paint stuff on their back legs and tail. So it's like a cross between powder and paint. Sometimes it's called powder. Sometimes it's called paint. And it's really sort of glittery. And uh, if you shine a UV light, it glows. So they'd dunk the newt in that, and then they'd let the newt go, and um, it would go on its way. And all the other newts were jealous because of how fabulous that newt looked. Yeah, well, that was the thing. So the newts were kind of lining up, trying to get powdered. (laughs) Um, But when they were powdered, what it would mean was that they could go back in the morning. So they were conducting this fieldwork at night, sort of um, first few hours of darkness. They'd powder all the newts, and then they'd go home, and then they'd come back out just before sunrise and follow all the newt trails to see where the newts had gone. Um, And they were looking at things like how far each newt travelled, what happened when they reached one of these mitigation measures, i.e. how did they respond to fences and tunnels. Um, And then they were kind of scoring what happened to the newt by giving it uh, a number. So if a newt reached the tunnel and went straight into it, it would be a zero because it had a zero deflection angle. Whereas if a newt reached a tunnel and turned around completely and went back the opposite way, it would be 180. So it's 180 degree shift. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, so they did this for a number of nights, both in the spring and the autumn, which are the key moving times for the newts, as we said earlier. Spring because they're looking for their breeding pools and autumn because they're looking to go back and hibernate. And they caught 387 different newts. And what was quite cool is, you know, I mentioned earlier that you can tell a newt by its belly pattern. You know who it is based on their unique 
combination yeah. of spots. Um, they actually had software that did that. So they used a software called IS, sorry, I3S. So if you're interested in uh, pattern recognition software, check it out. It seems like it worked for these guys. And um, yeah, they managed to catch 387 different newts, which were pretty even split of males and females, uh, adults and juveniles. And um, once they'd spent all this time following newt trails, they got some quite interesting data. Um, the vast majority of newts in a night only moved a very short distance. So 77 of those in autumn and 97% in spring only moved less than five meters per night. So they're really not going very far. They're kind of just... Uh, so how many nights would that... Sorry, how many nights does that cover? Like what's, what's the total distance for a, a newt? So they Migration. did, how many uh, how many nights did they do? It's funny, I had like a premonition that you'd ask me that, but I didn't want to have too many numbers <laughs> written down. Um, 38 surveys they did, 24 in autumn, 14 during spring. Um, okay. So, yeah, they don't have like, they weren't tracking the same newts consecutively because obviously once they've gone, they've gone. There was very low recapture rate. So mm. they were just getting one night of tracking data per newt per time they caught them um it was very unusual for a newt to move more than 10 meters in a night it was only recorded in the autumn and only five percent of juveniles and only one percent of adults would move more than 10 meters per night so these are newts that in the course of an evening really aren't going very far and um Hmm. especially when you consider that that five meters or less isn't a straight line that's not a straight line like you know, that's not a displacement distance. That's how far they've actually wound around. So they're not going very far. And what they're doing in these nights is um, often they'll be foraging. So they'll be eating invertebrates and stuff like that. Um, and obviously then they've also got the kind of background scheme that they are probably looking for a pond as well. Um, so with regards to the kind of newts and the mitigation measures, it was really strange for newts to enter tunnels. Most of the newts that were found at an entrance to a tunnel would move either to the side or just back away from the tunnel. Only 20% of newts which were found at the entrance to a tunnel actually attempted to pass them, which suggests that, you know, these giant gaping moors under the ground aren't, aren't, very inviting. aren't appealing to newts. Um, yeah. The other thing they found out was that if a newt was walking along the fence, which happens sometimes, um, as the fence began to kind of like curve sharply towards the entrance of the tunnel, a lot of them would just ping off at that point and not follow it around. Yeah. Um, one of the reasons they think it might be is that because at the entrance to the tunnels, the vegetation has been cleared to make it easier for people. Um, whether or not, yeah. I mean, it's it's just been cleared for whatever reason, really. I mean, it's probably cleared as part of them putting them in, um, but it seems to be maintained as clear. And, for a newt, that represents quite a dangerous environment, potentially. So it could be that the lack of vegetation is putting them off. Um, and when you consider that these newts are only moving less than five metres a night, a 30 metre long tunnel under the ground, or a 40 metre long tunnel under the ground, that's a massive mammoth effort for a newt, which yeah. is unlikely I mean, I, to want to undertake. Yeah, I haven't read a huge amount on, on road mitigation things, but from what I have read, it seems like there are quite a few different aspects you need to be looking at one is how frequently the the tunnels are to reduce that time that they're going along a fence which is quite a weird movement for animals to be doing um another one that keeps coming up is substrate 
to what the tunnels actually have at the very bottom of them. Because a lot of these uh, like conveniently made drainage ones, certainly around here, they have gravel. Because you don't want to put something in the bottom of your tunnel that's going to clog up and uh, just get get filled and then block for the actual water drainage, the real purpose they're made, not for wildlife. So it's quite a hostile, horrible environment for a little amphibian to be walking along. Mm. And then, as you say, connectivity to the habitat surrounding is a big deal. And even things like pollutants and road noise. I mean, we've discussed road noise in previous uh, previous episodes, but all this stuff all comes together and can harm the possibility of anything using or even wanting to get close enough to a road to use a mitigation uh, structure. It's very... It's complicated and strikes me as very difficult to get correct. Yeah, roads are... I mean, yeah, I mean, imagine how dangerous a road is for a person. I'm pretty cautious about roads, I don't know about you. But um, if I was a, you know, a thousandth of my size, it would just... Oh, man, they'd be terrifying. Yeah, it would just be unreal. I'd be like a Komodo dragon having to cross the ocean. I just wouldn't do it. I love this now. Like, I want this to be common knowledge that Komodo dragons are scared of water. I don't care if it's true or not. <laughs> Scared of salt water. Yeah, scared of salt water. They'll happily wallow in fresh water. Maybe they hate waves. <laughs> yeah, maybe they don't like it when the sea goes in their nose. <laughs> uh, who does? But back to the news. Um, back to the news. Yeah, so um, fences did work to keep newts away from the road because obviously they were impermeable for newts, but they were basically just pinging off them and going different ways. Or quite often they'd settle down by the fence. They quite they seem to quite like the fence because um, I guess it provides protection from one direction. And apparently lots of rodents mm. you, like, also use the fence. There's lots of like rodent burrows and things like that where rodents are going along the fence. So it actually represented quite a nice place for the newts to kind of settle down and chill out. Um, and the fact that, as you said... The tunnels were 30 metres apart, which is an incredibly long distance for a newt to go. And um, yeah, yeah, they're just the likelihood of them following a fence for that long. I mean, it would be like a week long mission is they're just not going to do that. They just, it's just not they just weren't doing it. So essentially what what they found was that it was very unusual for newts to cross under the road. And um, yeah, the, the two areas of habitat just functionally were barely connected at all. Um, mm. They did mention, though, that these mitigation practices are probably working better for toads because they're willing to go a bit further. Um, well, this is the other the other kicker with these mitigation structures. You've got to try and design something works for all the animals uh, that's as cheap as possible, but also that's working on incredibly diverse taxa because it's not just you know you've got toads, you've got frogs, you've got uh, newts, you've got small rodents, you've got larger like mammals. I suppose uh, ground dwelling birds as well. Yeah, I mean, they're probably... It's a... Waddling under. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it, you can imagine a bird's going to have a very different... Uh, you know, you'd expect a tunnel for newts. You want very dense vegetation. You want a bit of moisture in there. Decent substrate with places to hide out, as it's, if, especially if it's the long tunnel, places to hide out while they're going along. A bird, well, it might just want something quite clear. to just book through it and not worry about it. I don't know. The other but thing, it strikes me like they'd have diverse requirements. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing is, to most animals, a tunnel just looks like a cave, right? And if you're not a cave-dwelling animal, then it's not going to appeal. No. Well, and, and it seems like quite a complex thing to get your head around to 
there's a there's a correct term like giving the kids the marshmallow and you say don't eat that marshmallow and if you don't eat it in five minutes you'll get two. Oh yeah it's it's that it's the delayed rewards thing isn't it okay i've got to go through this horrible tunnel but on the other side the grass is greener i'm not sure if how many animals have the ability to look beyond that when there's a you know it's a crazy risky thing to do to even try and get across a road you've got to be pretty motivated to try that especially when you go through a 40 meter tunnel in the dark you don't know what's on the other side of that no exactly (laughs) you've got to make the connection that you're going to trust it that it's going to get all the way across i suppose the uh i suppose the time when it would be really good is if you'd just put it in and then you really had a strong sense that they wanted to get there because that's where their pools were um they still had that spatial knowledge yeah. that the pool was over there, yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, and then... Even then, I mean, how many newts have, like, been, oh, I'm going to investigate this human structure and then been punished for it because it's a picnic bench and they get sat on? Countless. <laughs> I couldn't think of a better example, but my point is that well, I thought animals <laughs> have an idea of unnatural human structures are bad news for a lot of animals. Not your best example, but you know, yeah, the analogy stands. We'll we'll let it pass. So, um, yeah, that was that was essentially the kind of first time these mitigation measures had been tested, and yeah, they kind of provide some guidance. You know, they should be they need to be close together, and they need to consider the kind of life history of the animal. Um, and how, how? Sorry, just going back to how long. You said the road was like 11, 12 metres wide, right? Yeah. And the structures were 40 metres long? Yeah. One was 40 and one two were 30. So they were quite set back from the road then. Okay. Yeah, they are. There's a really nice image actually um, in the paper. Of, yeah. Or... I just wonder I wonder if that was would be one way to improve it is have them much, much shorter so there's less of a um, cost to even attempt to go through them. Yeah. Because, I mean, it, like you were saying, 30 metres is quite a long way for a newt that's only doing five metres a day. If it's going through a tunnel, it's committing to, like, eight days in in a tunnel. Yeah. That sounds horrible. Yeah. And, you know, foraging There's opportunities. There's nothing to eat in there, is there? Potentially not. There's not much vegetation yeah. in there because it's dark. Tough time for a newt, then. Yeah, they do have some really nice images, though. They um they got a photo of the mitigation under the road. I mean, it's really well put together. It's an exceptionally professional-looking mm. job. Um, and they've also got a really funny photo of a newt that's been dunked in this glitter paint <laughs> stuff. It's just so cute. Its little legs are, like, splayed out, and it's bright yellow. Um, but, yeah. Stylish. I think um, it's really good that humans have got it in mind to do these things. And, obviously, roads are a massive boundary. But for newts, this particular type of mitigation doesn't seem to be particularly effective other than to stop them being killed on the roads which it is doing they're not getting smashed but they're also but they are seemingly not connected to their neighboring habitat yeah. yeah 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 no maybe maybe little streams or something like that something that provides foraging opportunity and cover basically connecting suit making a corridor of suitable habitat that would be much better yeah, much more expensive, much more difficult, and much more newt specific. But yeah, uh, but like, it might cover all amphibians. I think it, I think wildlife bridges are the way to go rather than wildlife tunnels. But obviously, they're a lot more expensive. Yeah, dep- depends. I think it depends on on where you're putting your road. But in a lot of cases, yeah, I'd I'd be willing to bet that bridges are more expensive. Yeah. Yeah, digging holes is cheap. Building bridges, you got to get a proper. I mean. I'm sure proper engineers built these as well. They look very professional. I shouldn't say that, but yeah. 
But it seems like a, a, a more affront to nature, building something up and digging something down, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, it does. Okay. Okay, so like that's enough about newts. They're really cool. And if if anyone obviously in the UK you have to have a license to mess about with newts. Unfortunately I had the opportunity to go out with some people, which was amazing. So thanks Steve and JP. But um if you ever get the opportunity, if someone ever says to you, Hey, do you want to go and check out some great crazy newts? Just say yes, because they're incredible. (laughs) Say no to drugs, say yes to newts. Yeah. Well, yeah. Consider drugs carefully. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know what newts and Komodo dragons have in common? Um, yes. Their temperament. Their temperament, because they've got similar brains. <laughs> right? Newts and Komodo dragons have brains that look like brains. Presumably, I've never <laughs> seen a newt brain or a Komodo dragon brain, but I'm running with it. What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> well, the point is... There's a new study out on brain size, ecology, and sociality, a reptilian perspective. Um, This isn't a perspective from the reptile's point of view, but more looking at reptiles and seeing whether general trends of brain size and ecology and sociality have led to changes in what the reptilian brain looks like, or how big it is specifically. It's a paper by uh, Demester and Folk published it. Well, 2019, I said it was new, in the Biological Journal of the Linnaean Society. Yeah, and when we said, well, I said on Facebook and Twitter that we were doing a News Nice episode, and this was mentioned by a couple of different people, so... um, It was, and it. Thank- I was a little bit annoyed with that, because I'd found it all by myself. Yeah, so did I. It looks like someone found it for me. So did I, but I was, <laughs> I was hoping that you would read it, and then just tell me about it, which is my favourite way to learn <laughs> stuff, because it's minimal effort on my part. But yeah... So yeah, Mark Schertz told us about this, and so did Jordi Jansen. So thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you. So, jumping straight to it. Bigger brains eh, probably means they're smarter, right? That's a general That's a general sort of connection. So maybe using brain size as a proxy for smartness. And then with that in mind... You know, sort of bigger brains are connected to more complex habitats, so that'd be arboreal or uh, what do you call it, uh, saxicolus, so like rocky. More Stop complex it. habitats. Saxicolus. Isn't that the right word? Yeah, it is the right word. I just love that you're pretending like you've got it in common usage now. <laughs> well, hey man, they used it. I'm using it. I'm rolling with it. <laughs> just like a stone. Because you've got more complex spatial things to deal with. You know, you've got branches all up in your face and you've got rocks that you've got to clamber over. Flat ground, easier. You don't need a brain to understand how flat ground works. So would you think then, by extension, that benthic fish that live on the bottom of the seafloor would be stupid? I realise... Well, it depends. If it was very lumpy, <laughs> no. like, corally... I'm talking about, like, the abyssal less... plain where it's flat, flat for weeks and months... Yeah, they're dumb as rocks, mate. (laughs) They basically are rocks. (laughs) Stupid fish. I don't know. As you you see a little bit, it might not be that simple. Okay, sorry. But the other other real kicker in uh, mammals and birds and things is the association with sociality, with more social animals being smarter. Why? I suppose you've got to be dealing with 
you know, avoid annoying other members of your species and getting beaten up because of it. Mm. That requires a bit of thought and process. You've got to recognize cues and things like that. It's an environment that breeds smartness in some regard. But we don't really know how that works with lizards and squamates in general. We talked two episodes ago about smart lizards and social lizards. Yeah. And so there's, there is smart and social lizards out there. We just don't know how that associates with brain size and how that fits into a, a larger squamate picture and whether there are associations between brain size and different uh, traits. So this is what this study did. Basically, they got brain data, as I've turned it in my notes, for 171 species. And these species were classified uh, by three different sort of... Yeah, traits. Traits isn't a bad word. They had habitat layer, or they, they called it ecological guild. Um, so that's whether they're arboreal, terrestrial, saxicolous, or fossorial. They had a sort of whether they're social or solitary, and then they had a habitat type, which were different classifications of habitat in varying degrees of complexity. But also working into this are confounding variables, because if only brain size was that simple. <laughs> you have a couple of trends in squamates. Uh, the less limbs you have, or the fewer limbs you have, the less limb development you have, the smaller your brain tends to be. Makes a lot of sense. If you don't have limbs to control, you don't need a bigger brain to control those limbs. You can be a bit more streamlined, right? I don't think being a giant sausage would necessarily be the simplest thing ever, though. There's a lot of things to consider. There's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of things to consider, but that's what the trend is. And it's also found in this study, too. That's mental. I always thought that being a snake would be quite hard, because how do you control that tube with all those muscles? (sighs) There's fewer muscles, I guess. So it just requires, like... Being good at something doesn't necessarily require a big brain. It's true. It just might require a more specialised brain. This, oh, that's mental. Yeah. Having fingers and toes requires a bigger brain. Well, certainly bigger parts of a brain. Yeah. Okay. Or in squamates, that seems to be the case. So you've got to control for that in their study to test those other three uh, did, traits. Did they have any of those skinks? You know, the ones that have only got back feet and just use them like little paddles? Or is it only... F- I, I, Dude, I did not look through 171 species to find out if they had the little skinks with the little funny feet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Ben, whatever. Fine. I didn't, didn't, I didn't how you think read that papers. was particularly pertinent to the overall brain question. Well, just so you know, in future, if there's any chance that little paddle feet guys are going to be in there, I'd appreciate if you took the time to look. Well, what if I... Um... <laughs> Oh, I can't see if there's any supplementary material. I think I think there is. I think it's actually they've done a very good job of publishing uh, results and analysis and stuff, but it's not immediately to hand. So you will have to go forward in ignorance of whether they had tiny little skink guys. <laughs> That's okay. I'll get it. Uh, what's the other one? Geographic origin. Some places have animals with bigger brains than other places. Seems to be a general pattern. You've got to control for it. The other one is body mass. Bigger animals have bigger brains. Yeah, makes sense, right? Okay, so this was all re- like relative to body size, was it? Yeah, those the geographic uh, origin, the body size, and number of limbs or limb development, limb loss, whatever you want to call it, were all controlled for. 
Yeah. Because we don't really want to look at those because we know that there's associations with those. What we're actually interested in is the setup these animals are in, the sociality, the habitat, whether that's driving brain size, not these more external ex- yeah yeah no. it's less interesting to look at ev- from an evolutionary perspective than these trio especially the sociality because that's a whole super hypothesis in mammalian bird worlds but reptiles being reptiles it wasn't that easy was it um they did find arboreal species tended to have larger brain to body ratios and fossorials were smaller but the pattern wasn't actually significant really it doesn't surprise me yeah. that underground filthy little floor dwellers are stupid. Well, this is see, this is the other kicker is that I'm I'm gonna sort I won't leave to the end because you've brought it up, but we're assuming that this brain size is a good proxy for cognitive ability, and I'm. <sighs> it might well not be. Yeah. Okay. No. There's I a- don't know, man. You're dealing. You're dealing with squamates. Who knows what goes on in those tiny little brains? They might be wired differently, right? I. I don't know enough about squamate brains to say that in any confidence. But the way it isn't brought up, or that I don't remember it being brought up, just makes me a little bit like, uh, is brain size actually gonna? It feels like maybe the similar sort of thing was said about birds once upon a time, and. They are. They just have different forms of brain to mammals. Doesn't necessarily mean they're less smart. Okay. So, so I'm wondering whether the use of brain size as a proxy to investigate some of these um, traits is the best way of going about it. Yeah. Like it's the best stuff we have right now for squirrel mates. Um, but I feel like some of these conclusions we can't write them off entirely until. Yeah, because I mean, been how else dug into in a little bit more detail? How else would you go about it? Like complexity of behavior, or something like that. Like how That's, how do you objectively yeah, you, you measure need a, intelligence between species? How do you do that? Yeah, you you need species to be able to do a certain like a certain type of task or something. Um, an example for mammals and birds is being able to recognize themselves in mirrors, right? I think you that's going to these... be a long shot for most reptiles. <laughs> well, this is the thing. You you need one designed that's appropriate for the clade yeah. or order or whatever that you're studying, right? Mm. And I think we discussed some options two episodes ago with the food-driven color recognition learning stuff. We just need more things like that to generate a... I, What's, I was going to say, there's a there's a word a that I'm looking test. for. Litmus test, almost, yeah, like a. I was almost going to say a syllabus. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, all right, lizards, go through the syllabus, <laughs> do your tests, and then you get a like cognitive ability score at the end, and then you do all this this stuff to see how the traits and where they live and their sociality impacts that cognitive score. And I think we're a little bit detached from the actual ability of some of these species when it comes to squamates. Yeah, makes sense. I don't know. Maybe their brains are remarkably similar to birds and actually there's a very... You can use those as a proxy. I don't know. But um, it feels like there's just one step too far of detachment between actual smartness and these traits when you're using brain size. So... Was there no significant results to do with habitat type and brain size? 
Um, they didn't find an association between brain and habitat generalism. Um, and they also didn't find an association between higher, well, sociality and larger brains either. That's interesting, isn't it? You'd think you'd really expect that to be... Well, yeah, they came up with some sort of interesting discussion points on that. One, suggesting that maybe lizard sociality is less demanding than sociality in birds and primates, or more efficient, or something along those lines. Um, Another potential option is that the way the selective pressures are acting on the brain is it's not actually increasing the brain size as such, but it's just affecting very specific areas of the brain. So it's not overall brain size, but just more targeted, maybe? Yeah, I don't know. that makes sense. The other is a counterpoint saying, well, maybe solitary animals are certainly thinking something like king cobras, something like that. Um, because they're solitary, they have to maintain, well it's debatable whether kings do maintain territories but think of a territorial species um, on a larger spatial scale you've got to remember where your territory is you've got to deal with other conspecifics that's quite a big cognitive task remembering all this area and dealing with all those uh, potential situations I guess in your territory so maybe that's driving up solitary squamate brain size Mm be interesting because you mentioned that the um sociality doesn't seem to increase the brain size but maybe there's like yeah maybe there is a brain size that can be accommodated by an animal and it's kind of if you want to increase the brain size in one area you've got to sacrifice something else so maybe the lizards which are social they're you know perhaps they're not quite as nimble for being social or they're not perhaps their memory is not as good because their sociality has improved something like that well, this is why I think you need to get at something like cognitive ability that should be influenced by all these things, right? You could be very social, but very dumb in a different aspect. Yeah, like I know loads and the of tests people who would are hopefully social. show that up. Yeah, like yeah, you can be friendly and stupid as a person. <laughs> well, exactly. It feels like it just needs another level of of uh, another level of study. But holy smokes, that is a long way away. I think. Um, to get the quantity of species studied for like compared to mammals and birds that's a long that's a long time coming but uh, as a study pretty cool very nice to see squamates getting this sort of attention regarding uh, brain size and sort of heading towards that problem solving aspect we know that a lot of them can survive in urban environments in complex scenarios you think of geckos in urban environments and stuff there is a tendency for animals that can make use of generalist habitats to be smarter than those that don't. Um, mm. Okay, brain size isn't showing up that pattern, but you know this is only 171 species out of how many squamate species? 3,000 something? Um, or is that 3,000 snakes? No, there's a hell of a yeah, lot of squamates like, out there. There's that, there's, there's that many snakes. There's like 3,600 snakes, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's some, like, I'm not surprised that things are sort of not particularly clear in this study. It's a fantastic first step, um, and I can't wait to see a little bit more. What it what it really shows up is how we need to do a lot more studies on reptiles. 
Yeah, again, they're going to get a lot of citations. Oh, loads. And I think it's really, yeah, from a from a, a sort of cultural perspective, I think it's important too. Yeah. Because reptiles do come with this uh, sort of dinosaur bias of big dumb lizard sort of stuff, right? Yeah. And, you know, that's not particularly fair in some cases. We know monster lizards could count to like seven, right? I mean, that doesn't impress me. Well, <laughs> only because you can count to eight and you can outdo it. <laughs> I can count to like 125. <laughs> oh, man. Um, yeah, no. You can't beat hands down then. Um, no, yeah, you're right. And um, I think, yeah, this is kind of like a, a cool little springboard. A lot more people, you know, there's there's social and intellectual stuff going on with reptiles more and more so. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, you look at the As lizard say, lab papers we did a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's happening. It's getting more and more complex and interesting every every study. Yeah, very. Um, it's exciting, and this is a good a good start to investigating those patterns. Yeah. Right. So and catch them up with mammals and birds. Oh, before we move on, um, I'm on Wikipedia page for the uh, maximum size of an amphibian. <laughs> or, I, really, the weight is all I really care about. Yeah. We've got Chinese giant salamander. Apparently, there was one that was 64 kilograms. Get out of here. Yeah. If they've got that big, there's definitely an extinct one that weighed 90. 100%. Yeah, that's in the good old Guinness Book of Animal Facts and Feats, apparently, published in 1983. But yeah, I'm willing to bet that there's an extinct one that was a wee bit bigger than a fat salamander. That is the biggest living amphibian, the Chinese giant salamander, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's 64 kilograms, it's going to be. That is a big, slimy creature. Hang on a minute. Yeah, I can't find anything to do with the extinct ones. Well, it's probably quite hard to guess how, how heavy they are. Mm. Depends how much meat you put on them when you recreate them, I guess. Lots. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of meat. <laughs> they, were, they were meaty. So, um, yeah, cool. That's, that's good to know, though. It's good to know that they're not as big as Komodo dragons, because that would just be scary. But they are still big enough to be impressive. Oh, yeah. Right, so I've got a few corrections. I think we're ready to go on to any other business, are we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, let's, let's hear some corrections. Okay, so I uh, had some good ones from Scott Iper. Um, in the last episode, I quoted the Orbrett 2015 paper about um, tiger snake body size. And I said that the biggest a mainland tiger snake could get was... Uh, one meter SVL. Scott said that's not true. He's seen lots which are bigger than that. Um, he said it's common to find uh, mainland Australian tiger snakes larger than 1.2 meters SVL. So um, that was actually a mistake in the paper, but something I said. Um, the other. Th- well, that's that's doubly cool then. Yeah, it's good to know, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Some big tiger snakes out there. Yeah, and on the mainland as well, which not everyone knew. Um, another thing was we were talking about the reptiles of Christmas Island a lot, obviously, and I'm talking about which one? <laughs> the one, the famous one near Indonesia. Um, no, which reptile? Oh, Emoya atrocostata, <laughs> which is uh, uh, the coastal skink. Um, they were on Christmas Island. 
but they went extinct there. They're still elsewhere, Atro Costata, except for the fact um, that Scott says, although it was believed that it wasn't an endemic species, it might actually have been an endemic species that hadn't been properly described that went extinct. So we'll never know oh. now because they're gone. But um, yeah, it could be that it was actually uh, a different species. Although it is possible we might find out. There might be some in museums. I don't know. Yeah, there might be some buried in some museum somewhere. Yeah. Another thing we... Mislabeled. <laughs> well, that would be... Yeah. Another thing was that um, Ramphotype flops... Ramphotype flops Exocoeti, um, which is the blind snake that is found native on Christmas Island, is actually still mm. present because um, we were discussing whether or not it was actually there. Scott says it is still there. The most recent specimen was found about five years ago. But you know how hard it is to find blind snakes anyway. They're, you know, they're super mysterious. They're sneaky. Yeah. Um, sneaky. However, yeah. Um, I had a look on the Australian government website and about Ramphotyphlops exocoeti. Um, they've got lots of threats, you know, clearing habitat, mining, soil compaction, erosion. <laughs> Literally everything that humans do. Yeah. Um, introduced predators, we talked about rats, the giant centipede and the wolf snake. But also competition with the Brahmini blind snake, which is actually uh, on the island. One of the most widespread invasive species on the planet, right? I would probably say, yeah, behind like rats and cats, um, goats, it's perhaps. Pr- it's right up there, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's, it's bad, bad, It's got to be top 10. Um, and then obviously we talked a little bit about the yellow crazy ant. That's also a threat. Um, but I googled this Christmas Island blind snake um, to have a look. To see what it looked like, expecting a boring old blind snake because they mostly look pretty much the same. But it's really cool. Um, they're actually sometimes called the Christmas Island pink blind snake because their interstitial, interstitial skin is pink um, and their scales are kind of dark brown. They're actually pretty cool. They're pink. I'm bringing them up now. Oh, yeah, they're pretty groovy. I mean, you've got to think of it in the context of blind snakes, which are, you know, they can't see. They don't need to be good looking to impress each other. They live underground, they're blind. They smell incredible though. Absolutely divine. They do. Do they? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, yeah. I so, mean, how else are they going to know how good another blind snake's looking? Um, or smelling. Anyway, so thanks, um, Scott, for those, as always. Um, that's really interesting insight about the. Um, Tiger snakes. It's fun when... Mm. It's always exciting when we learn something that we couldn't learn from a paper. And then... Oh, it's the best. Um, there was some discussion on our Facebook page about the introductions of lizards on Christmas Island uh, after episode 42. And um, a guy called Jason Turl, who works for Parks Australia, came on and he actually works on the reintroduction efforts of um, Cryptoblepharis agariae, which is awesome. the blue-tailed skinks. And he also does the geckos yeah, yeah, yeah. as well. But they've started doing a soft release in like a fenced area um, and re-releasing re-rele- these um, blue-tailed skinks. And they're going really awesome. well. They've actually seen evidence that they've been breeding. Um, more than 10... Oh, fantastic. Yeah, more than 10 juveniles have been seen. Um, he was talking about the threats. Um, the invasive centipedes are a big problem. Um, and sometimes they get... Yeah, eaten. they're sneaky too, centipedes. They must be quite hard to keep out. Yeah, well, they're centipedes. Rats and things, I imagine, being a little bit easier. But centipedes... They can squeeze through small gaps. Well, my experience of centipedes as well is that, like, we did loads of surveying uh, in Thailand when I was out there, and many nights you'd see one or two, but then 
occasionally when the situation was just right, they would be everywhere. On every tree mm. you'd see one. Um, and, and, you know, they're like, you know, 10, 12 inch big, big things. And, and they'll eat anything too. Yeah, I'm fairly sure they would have taken me on if I'd have allowed them a chance. But um, Yeah, if you just lay there for a bit, yeah, be all over you. But um, yeah, they've basically the, the the long and short of what Jason said was that they've had really good success, and they've kind of been excluding the non-native predators, and they've put up um, tape, electric barrier tape, to stop predators climbing in. So um, yeah, the blue-tailed skinks are doing really well, and they're hoping to put listers geckos into the same site. Like, oh, that's so cool! This year, so yeah, it's going well. The- Actual. Actual, genuine, good conservation news. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. And um, uh. I didn't realise, because I missed this episode, but, yeah, Wildlife King Cocktails did an episode where they interviewed Hamish Noller and Jason Tell. And so, um, yeah, if you want to learn more about this conservation project, which is fascinating, definitely go and listen to that. Um, you can find out yeah. a lot more from the horse's mouth, as it were. But, yeah, it's going well, which is really exciting. Um, and, yeah, that's... All my any other business. All right. Uh, the only bit I've got is um, Copeyas started with a 50-day uh, open access thing. So new research papers coming out from Copea, uh you can just grab them, read them, download them for 50 days. Um, and they're saying they're continuing that on into 2019 because it's been so successful and it hasn't hurt their bottom line. So there's a little lesson that open science actually does good. Good. Well, Isn't that cool. fun? Well, take advantage of that. If Check out Capea because guaranteed there'll be something, if you like reptiles and amphibians, there'll be something that interests you. And also there's a smattering of stuff about fish, which I personally find fascinating as well. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could read about fish. I like fish. <laughs> I got a bit, I got you would have been time. so jealous of some of the fish that I saw in the Everglades. I would have been. As apparently you saw yeah. one of the most friendly fish of all, the manatee. Oh, yeah. Big mammalian fish boy. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, they're ridiculous. <sighs> cool. Well, I think that's about it, isn't it? Shall we wrap it up? Uh, I think so. Cool. If you want to get yes. in touch, herphighlights at gmail.com or we're on Facebook. Just search for Herp Highlights or Herpetological Highlights. Twitter at Herp Highlights. And yeah, that's about it. I think all those pages have links to all other pages and things like that. Yeah, cool. So. Um, we will be back in two weeks' time talking about the problems with detectability, I believe. Things are hard to find. They are, Mm. especially snakes. And on that note, especially snakes. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.